Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to the podcast, It's Who You Know. My guest today is Rabbi Joshua Rabin, who is the Director of Innovation at the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism where he's also the program director for their convention. The reason I wanted to bring Josh on the program today uh, was because of an article that he wrote. It was one of the 10 most liked pieces on Idris Philanthropy in 2000. I'm the, la- I'm the last one. Don't say that. <laughs> you were on the list. And the article was titled, Will Your Synagogue Be a Club or a Cause? And when I read the article, I thought what he was speaking to really resonated a lot with my experience in synagogue life. And then I went to his blog and read a bunch more of his writings and really wanted to hear more about his experiences in doing this work. So welcome, Josh, to the program. Very excited to speak with you. If you could just tell us a little bit about your experience, how you got to where you are, and some some of the things in your in your path that really stick out to you as being influential. So it's great to be here. I am a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and I make this very corny joke with every audience. I like to tell people that I have an unfortunate genetic heritage, which is that I am the son of not one but two former synagogue presidents. Ah, yes. <laughs> So both of my parents were, were president of our synagogue growing up. You know, synagogue life is all that I've ever known. You know, I went to a three-day-a-week Hebrew school and did did youth group and the whole deal. And my, my journey to the rabbinate is, I guess, a, a story for another time. But synagogues have always been my passion. And there are a lot of reasons why, you know, in the North American Jewish community synagogues are the most affiliated Jewish institution by a wide margin and have really had a central role in North American Jewish life since Jews first arrived on this continent. And they've, they've changed plenty. They're very, a synagogue from the 18th century looks nothing like a synagogue of the 21st century. But the, the idea of what the institution means, I think, is and remains like extremely important. So United Synagogue, you know, I get a chance to kind of get my hands dirty with the needs of lots of different congregations around North America. And in particular, you know, what's an interesting challenge of the work that I get to do is that I'd like to think that I speak uh, fluently the language of synagogue life. And so if I'm sitting at a table with a a synagogue president from a relatively typical synagogue, we speak the same language. How many synagogues would you say you visited in your career so far? Um, Well, if you count like convenings where, you know, lots of synagogues are present, because oftentimes, uh, like on Sunday, I'm going to teach a group of 10 synagogues in Mm. uh, around Atlanta. So there's six conservative shuls in Atlanta, but I believe there are ones coming from Birmingham, Alabama and Chattanooga, Tennessee. So, you know, um, I would say that touch points with maybe somewhere between two to 300. Okay. So you've seen a lot and you've heard a lot. Yeah. I also am a millennial. I mean, I'm on the older side of the millennial generation, but I was born in 1984. So I'm I'm barely a millennial. <laughs> I've lived in New York City for 10 years and attended Kahilat Adar, an independent minion. And so you know, my own Jewish experiences also have gone outside of the traditional synagogue life in which I grew up. And in this particular position, I consider it a real asset because there's an ability to translate what it is that people in relatively typical synagogues are trying to, to work through mm-hmm. in a way that helps them see possibilities without speaking what I feel sometimes is like a, a totally different language that... Right certain parts of the Jewish community might try to speak. And so for me, I feel like it's a very noble and important cause to be able to try and translate new ways of thinking in a language that makes sense to people who have very ordinary day-to-day challenges in their congregations, you know, making sure the roof is repaired and making sure that, uh, you know, Hebrew school enrollment is where it needs to be, um, things like that. So other than your parents and just the household you grew up in and the things you grew up in, was there a moment that you knew that this was the kind of work that you wanted to be doing? Well, I'm I'm 100% certain that if I did not become a rabbi, I would have eventually been president of whatever synagogue I, I went right. to. You know, I should mention that my, my late grandfather was a Hebrew school principal for a number of years in mostly conservative congregations in southeastern United States. 
my wife is also a rabbi, as is her father and her brother. It's a very hard to pinpoint that like one moment in time, given the way that I grew up. What I will say is that the synagogue that I grew up at, which is in a suburb of Baltimore, Maryland, when I was in, I believe, fifth grade, was faced with the decision of deciding to move out of the only location it had ever really known. Hmm. Or in, in the 1970s, before I was born, the congregation you know, had over a thousand families and had like the largest congregational school in the whole state of Maryland. And for a variety of reasons, it shrunk in size and it was losing money. And basically had it not moved, it wouldn't be here today. There's, there's no way I would have right. grown in a completely different congregation. But basically- and Was that a factor of the changing demographics of the area? I would say that that was part of it. I would say governance issues, some, some questions of lay staff relationships in terms of just kind of like, what was the standard operating procedure? of the synagogue also just wasn't working. Right. That period of time when the synagogue moved, I remember being there, you know, on the last day that the whole congregation convened as we, mm-hmm. as we moved out of that building and the current president took a torch and lit the Ner Tamid from the current synagogue to take it to wow. a new location. That was really when my parents became involved. And I basically watched them and their friends essentially revive this congregation from life support and go through a very long rabbinic search to find the right rabbi. And I remember my father, one day I came home and I found out the shul was having a raffle. They were raffling a car, like a brand new Lexus. Wow. Selling raffle tickets for $100 a ticket. What I didn't know at the time was that it was basically to raise cash for the congregation. Mm. So for months, my dad was going around and, and selling raffle tickets around the community for this car. Those are the kind of things. I remember being woken up by phone calls in the middle of the night because when the congregation was between executive directors, my dad was the person that would be called by the police department if the synagogue alarm went off. Right. And that kind of like ordinary day-to-day stuff is not, I can't speak for all my rabbinic colleagues. I doubt that that is the examples that a lot of them turn to and saying why they became rabbis. But I also feel that it really spoke to me in one way. And I had to ultimately decide at some point, would I rather be doing this as like a second job, as like a night Mm -hmm. job, which is sort of the way it was for my parents, or did I really want to go all in on it? And I chose the latter rather than the former. So what do you do as your night job now? No, I'm just just kidding. (laughs) I talk to you on podcast. Right. You do this. Uh, Wonderful. Well, that's a fantastic story. And it's Definitely, every time I speak to somebody about why they do what they do, it's always a different narrative. And I love just hearing that that was the type of household that you grew up in. And that was the kind of example in your house of where your priorities are, where your values are. And you decided that 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 spoke to you as a lifestyle, which is fantastic. And definitely gives you a little more insight to the people that you're working with as far as their commitments and their lifestyles. I want to turn to your article from E-Jewish Philanthropy. You know, you can talk a little more as to the experiences that led you to write this or come to these conclusions and the feedback that you've received from this article and how maybe this informs the way that you've moved forward in the way you talk about this work. So as I mentioned, the the article's name is Will Your Synagogue Be a Club or a Cause? And you refer to the Planet Money episode, a great story. It's talking about gym memberships. And that people pay for gym memberships, but nobody actually comes. And if everyone who paid came, they wouldn't be able to support that membership. And then connecting that, of course, with our synagogues and, you know, talking about the research study saying 31% of American Jews belong to a synagogue. And then you come up with three ways that we can sort of look at this in the context of synagogue life and synagogue belonging. So you talk about how synagogues can or should look at themselves more as a cause as opposed to a club like these gym memberships and what's going to attract people in the door who not only just pay their membership but want to be engaged in some way with the community. You talk about these three ways. The first one being a club is owned by members and a caused by the mission, that a club aims for output and a cause for impact, and that a club fills roles and a cause uncovers a person's gifts. Wonderful conclusion. So I'd love for you to just 
Talk a little bit about, about this article and how you came to these various conclusions. I'll start off by saying that the idea about sort of mission and purpose in the life of religious institutions is, is an idea that is discussed in a lot of different settings by a lot of different thinkers, both in sort of the Jewish world and in the church world. I think I actually cite in the article that this idea about the synagogue being owned by the mission is was really coined by a man named Dan Hotchkiss, who worked at a place called the Alban Institute which for many years was the largest church consulting nonprofit in North America. But the reason I formulated in the way that I did in the article was because I was responding to a question that basically comes up all the time when I interact with synagogue leaders, particularly in my role oftentimes as both a representative of United Synagogue and kind of like a designated young person in the congregation. I feel weird calling myself a young person, but in in those settings, I typically am. You know, there's oftentimes this question that is brought up about, it's either phrased as a question saying, how can we get the next generation to join synagogues? Or sort of a declarative statement saying people or Jewish people are not interested in joining synagogues any longer. There's no way to deny the sort of trends in affiliation rates But I actually think that both the question and that statement oversimplifies the situation a little bit, that synagogues have existed in lots of different forms for thousands of years, you know, really Mm -hmm. since the time of the Second Temple period. And I wish we could just poll our members and just be like, all right, everyone raise their hand if you're a member of a synagogue. Uh, I think people can't see the, the bigger, larger picture when they're kind of stuck in their own situation. Totally. Every model of synagogue life is designed in its, in its historical context. So, you know, a great example of this is how the synagogue was designed when Jews first came to the United States during the mm-hmm. colonial period. So when they came to the United States, the only synagogue model that they knew was the model of the traditional, the traditional Jewish communal structure, mostly in Europe, which was known as the Kehillah. And Jonathan Sarner writes about this in his book, American Judaism, where those synagogues performed a lot of the functions of any synagogue, but the way that they kept people in the fold was through, frankly, coercion. So, you know, there are examples of congregations where you could choose not to be a member and not pay dues there, but the synagogue owned the only Jewish cemetery in town. If someone in your family died without being a member of the congregation, not only would you have to join that year to get a plot, you would need to pay like back dues on all the years that you should have been paying synagogue dues to fund it. That was essentially reflective of the model that they used in Europe because they had a certain legal authority and eventually that model no longer worked. I heard also from another rabbi that it was also a place where you got information, right? Where you went if you, you know, to hear the latest news or to hear what was going on or for the rabbi to give his thoughts on what was going on in the broader society around them where they maybe didn't have those outlets, or if they were immigrant communities that didn't speak the language of everywhere else, that that was a place to go to get that kind of information that you couldn't get other places. That was definitely a trend, certainly when there were major influxes of Jewish immigration. I've never actually seen where he he said this, but there's this legendary story at the Jewish Theological Seminary where I went to rabbinical school that Solomon Schechter, who was not the first chancellor of JTS, but is considered the most iconic first chancellor of JTS, famously said that all rabbis needed to understand baseball. (laughs) The reason he said that was because the rabbis at the time in their synagogues were not just the Jewish leaders, they were also the entree of their congregants to the rest of America. Mm -hmm. And so in many cases, the people in the congregation understood the language of Judaism, but they did not understand the language of America. And so the rabbi, both for practical purposes and also for effectiveness purposes, needed to be able to speak the language of America. And so that's where you started to see rabbis who could talk about baseball from the Bema or would talk about a story in the newspaper because that was the need of that moment. The synagogues that are the dominant model today and certainly were like created, let's say, post-World War II, were created at a time that all religious institutions grew because one of the ways that you were a good American was by being a member of civic associations. This is sort of like Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. So Mm -hmm. being a member of a synagogue was a form of participation. 
in the same way that you might have been a member of the American Legion or the Kiwanis Club. Right. And so even though you never showed up, just being a member and having your name on their donor rolls said something about your values. And if someone asked, you had an answer. And if someone asked, you had an answer. Right. That model, you know, has been eroding in all kinds of aspects of, of American life. You know, one of my great teachers in rabbinical school, Rabbi Kerry Olitsky, who was the, the executive director of, of Big Tent Judaism, the Jewish Outreach Institute for a number of years, talked to me about how it's not just synagogues that are declining in membership, it's the Boy Scouts, it's metropolitan museums of art. It's an entire model that has shrunk. The question I was trying to ask myself in the article, going back to your original question, was, well, if it was a club and that model is no longer the model of today, what is the model that you see that has momentum where synagogues are thriving? And I think that whether that's in a synagogue that has existed even for 100, 200 years, or you know, a spiritually emergent community like an Ikar or a, or a Romu or, or an independent minion, what I think those places all have in common is that... Well, I'm sure they have people who just belong there and don't really participate. Really, the essence of the community's success is defined by people being all in on the mission mm-hmm. and the purpose. And so in many ways, their synagogue is a cause. It might be a cause on how you do prayer or, or social justice or, or Talmud Torah or Jewish study. But what it says about them to be in that community is what the community is trying to achieve and trying to represent So does the cause have to be so different between synagogues? Like, do you have to be your own brand that is so different from a brand, you know, in three states away? Or is there sort of a similar theme between these synagogues, a similar thread that people can adopt or pick up? Because it's hard to think that every single synagogue we have in our nation can come up with their own individual cause that they are. But is it more the culture or the branding? Or is there ways to adapt more models that work into your own institution? So it's a very interesting question. My instinct is to say that I think it's a little bit of both in the following way. On the one hand, I think that synagogues that kind of articulate the same boilerplate message in an unintentional way have struggled. I think the joke I make in the article is that I'm waiting to visit the synagogue that says that they're cold and unwelcoming. Right. Don't care about the needs of families with children because... You know, what synagogue would try and claim that they're the unwelcoming synagogue? So there's a lot of kind of oversaturated language out there. Mm. And so I do think that the kind of mass production of synagogue life is a real struggling point because I think that people want to feel unique. They want to they know what it says about them to choose X synagogue over Y synagogue. So I think mm-hmm. that there's an element of that. I don't think that it has to be so unique that a synagogue in Maryland needs to be completely different than a suburban synagogue in, in Ohio or an urban synagogue in St. Louis. I think, though, that if synagogues are really being reflective about who they are within their own kind of ecology, like their own local context, right. that when you're really intentional, the brand will sort of, the cause will manifest itself a little bit differently. So a great example is that there's a conservative congregation in downtown Baltimore, Maryland, where I grew up in the suburbs, but there are really two congregations in Baltimore City. And one of them is located in uh, in an area of Baltimore that still has a decent amount of racial and ethnic diversity and has certain pockets of it that still have experienced, you know, quite a bit of urban decay. And the rabbi of this congregation, Beth Am, Daniel Berg, when he came to the congregation like six or seven years ago, in his first high holiday speech, asked the congregation, how can our synagogue be of the community? not just in our community, but of the community. And it really led to a reflective process about what the synagogue's purpose was in its context, so much so that they revised their mission statement to say that in addition to all the things that you see, you know, any conservative synagogue, even any reform synagogue probably do about social action and learning and prayer, that they were committed to being a part of the redevelopment of this area known as Reservoir Hill in Baltimore. And so they built playgrounds and they've built community centers. They've created like a community nonprofit and they are- That's fantastic. 
Yeah, it's an amazing story. And the reason I bring this up is that, you know, it wouldn't make any sense for the synagogue that's in an affluent suburb of the same community to have the exact same purpose mm-hmm. as that congregation. But I could easily imagine a scenario where any congregation is really looking at their context and saying, what do we really want to be known for? What do we really want to be unique about? And what niche can we play? This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast, my interview with Rabbi Joshua Rabin. Join us for our next episode with Rabbi Sherry Kohler-Fox, who is the president and founder of New Cage, reimagining Jewish education for the 21st century. Here's a bit of our conversation. So, you know, there are a lot of things today, project-based education and experiential education and all kinds of things going on in the world. And the other thing is the principals and the teachers are going out of their way to make it possible for kids to have a Jewish education. You know, if you have two parents working, it is not easy to get kids someplace after school. Mm -hmm. So they're bringing the school to their neighborhood. So they're doing it online. So they're only doing it so many hours a week and the parent can choose which day of the week to do it. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? They're they're going out of their way to make it possible for people. That was our next episode with Rabbi Sherry Kohler-Fox. To hear more, join us for our next episode. But for now, back to Josh. I think it's interesting that you talk about the fact that the first thing they did was looking at their mission statement, right? And even that, even if nothing had come of it, even that action of examining your core operating values and ensuring that that is aligning with the work that you're doing and the work that you want to be doing, even if only symbolic, although, you know, obviously that's not ideal, but that what you're showing to the community is we understand that you know, however long this has been here, it gives it new power, new regeneration of saying like, we're, we now have this new edict that we didn't have before, or nobody knew what the, like, I don't really know what the mission statement is of my synagogue, but if they redid it, <laughs> I probably would know exactly what the mission statement is of my synagogue. Even just that seemingly simple process of reevaluating the mission of why you do what you do can have really significant impact, as you said, a cause for impact on your community and how they connect to you. Yeah. I mean, my colleague at United Synagogue, a man named Bob Leventhal, who does the majority of organizational development training with synagogue leaders, when he does a strategic plan with a congregation, he has them study, you know, a variety of different mission statements. So sometimes it's other conservative congregations or or reform or orthodox ones, whatever ones that stand out. But one of the mission statements that he actually has them study is Whole Foods. And I pulled up their website as you were talking about mission statements because Whole Foods, you know, if you think about it, you think about the the supermarket that I grew up shopping at and how it also in a certain way is, is a mass produced model. Right. This idea of, you know, Whole Foods being about whole people and saying that value is inseparable from our values, it can seem almost crazy that they're talking about, you know, buying cereal and buying and buying cheese and milk and, and whatever else is you're buying. Absolutely. But there's a reason why that is the growing edge, say, in the supermarket business, mm-hmm. because that's also where people's choices are going. Now, does, now, every Whole Foods is actually a little bit different from each other. A Whole Foods in Maine has fresh Maine lobster because it's in Maine, and a Whole Foods in Texas has barbecue, but there's an idea of a person saying, what does it really mean to say that I'm choosing this place rather than another place? And I think that synagogues, some of them are are great at it. And I think that, you know, if you read like Finding a Spiritual Home by Sid Schwartz, he talks about this a lot where congregations of all types are really, when they're really able to define themselves and what they want to have stand out, it provides a sort of guiding sense of why the people are there that I think also just gives you a competitive edge. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it just comes down to brand marketing, right? When I say I'm a member of Ecar, there's a certain brand that they have disseminated in their particular community where somebody else, whether they're a member of Ecar or not, and I say I'm a member of Ecar, there's a certain identity that I've aligned myself with. And there's a certain brand that they have. So if you, you know, you're part of this synagogue that redevelops their area and there are people 
who know that this is what they do and you say, oh, I'm a member of that synagogue, you've aligned yourself with that identity. When you say, I shop at Whole Foods, you've aligned yourself with that identity of that Whole Foods. And if you don't have an identity outside of you know, a conservative shul or a reform shul, the shul in that River Edge neighborhood, right, then there's nothing that you're connecting your identity to other than the fact that you live in that neighborhood or you like to practice a certain kind of Judaism. But really finding what that mission is, that identity of, of who you are as a, as a community helps people align their identity to, to yours. I totally agree. That's an excellent point. There's an amazing book that I would encourage any Jewish professional or Jewish leader to read called The Calting of Brands by Douglas Atkins. And he basically compares, I actually think I first heard about this on Planet Money, or it was definitely, I definitely heard about it on one of those NPR podcasts. But um, the basic premise of the book was that really effective brands are in many ways, you know, very similar to sort of cultic identities, like the idea of my choosing something is a marker of how I wish to be in this world. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking to you right now on my MacBook Pro. For much of my life, I was a PC person, but eventually I switched to a Mac. But I've known people who their entire life have bought Mac computers. And for them, being a Mac person <laughs> was like a distinctive marker of their identity. And I fit a lot of the most vibrant spiritual communities, whether you're right, whether it's an Ikkar or a um, or a central synagogue or B'nai Jeshurun or any number of places, you know, what Atkins talks about in his book is the idea that the brand is sort of reflecting the individual's and the community's origin and authenticity, you know, and there's something very powerful about that. And some congregations that have been around for generations have made that transition very successfully and some are still trying to figure it out. Well, so I think that's a a great transition to my next question. Part of our target audience are Jewish professionals and part of that are those that work in synagogues. I know that there can be an interesting dynamic between those who do this work professionally and get paid to be the executive director or the community engagement person and those who, like your parents, do this on a volunteer level. And there's obviously always politics that go along with that. So from the professional side of the work, I guess the questions are, how do you help bring these ideas? How do you help bring new and and interesting things to your lay leaders who maybe don't see the same numbers that you see, don't see the same daily things, think, oh, well, I have my Mahjong group every Thursday and it's fantastic. What's, you know, there's nothing wrong here. Or is that not your, your experience that the professionals and lay leaders are on the same page or it's the lay leaders that are the ones that want to, you know, move things a little more forward or change. And it's professionals that are a little more stuck. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience and the dichotomy between those that work and are paid by those who volunteer and, and enjoy. It's a great question. I would first start off by saying that at least with my colleagues and I, I would say that it's a core principle of what we do to say that if if you want to strengthen and transform your synagogue, your professional and your lay leaders have to be in real genuine partnership Mm -hmm. with one another. So if a rabbi feels that that he or she is sort of on an island on their own, trying to, to bring everybody around, and it's sort of that person against lay leadership or vice versa, it's not going to get very far because each kind of constituency is, is essential to like the effective actualization of a synagogue's mission. I think I would also add that we are in desperate need in synagogues of a new way of talking about resistance to change. Mm-hmm. Why are certain things so hard in a way that can affirm the thing that a person is committed to without necessarily saying that that thing can remain if the synagogue wants to thrive? So you know, on Sunday, I'm flying to Atlanta. I'm doing a workshop that I do with congregational leaders that's called Immunity to Change, which is basically like a book that was written by two professors of education at, at Harvard a number of years ago. And it, it's a whole process where you actually map a goal that you really want to improve upon. And you go through a process of understanding what is the competing thing that is keeping me from actually making this change, even though I genuinely say that I want to do it. So if your congregation says, we want to be more welcoming to young families, 
or to millennials, I have no reason to doubt that that statement isn't heartfelt and true. But I actually think that the thing that might be holding you back is something that you may not even realize. Uncovering that and being able to affirm that commitment while understanding what you need to do in order to change it is very different than I think the way a lot of synagogue leaders can feel at times, um, which is sort of under attack from certain thought leaders in the Jewish community or sort of just like the narrative of synagogue life of, you know, Hebrew schools are terrible and the prayer is boring and the this and the that. And it, it creates this kind of defensive mechanism as opposed to kind of walking alongside a person and helping them understand what it is that is good that we're trying to hold on to while also understanding where's the space to actually to do something a little bit different. Or it turns into a blame game, right? It's the rabbi's fault for not being more engaged. It's the educator's fault for not doing this. It's this person's fault. Like, this is why we're having all these issues is the, that sort of finger pointing. It's not a unique issue we deal with, obviously. It is you know, very difficult, but it's finding, as you mentioned, what are those that mission, that impact that we're rallying around that helps fix those issues without going to the negative side of it. So what would be your advice for somebody who's who's working in a synagogue and wants to bring your ideas and and you're getting resistance? I'm going to challenge the premise of the question a little bit in the following way, gently, but I will answer it, which is that, you know, I believe that I work at a grassroots organization that is kind of masquerading as a central corporate organization. Right. That's also, I think, something that's changed in the Jewish community, meaning that I don't think that the synagogue professionals and lay leaders that I work with are actually all that interested in my advice. Uh, (laughs) And that's why you write. So if anyone else is interested, then you have an outlet. (laughs) Exactly. But I do think that this is like kind of a core principle, I think, of, of where learning and education is in our world today about this idea of understanding how people construct knowledge Mm -hmm. and construct their experience. And so, you know, going back to the article, the reason that I wanted to talk about this idea of your synagogue being a club or a cause is I think that that's language that someone who is immersed and deeply committed to synagogue life as it is right now can understand. Absolutely. And kind of walk alongside. And so it attempts to be kind of responsive to a question that I think is on the minds of many, if not most people who volunteer or work in synagogues. And so I gently mean to challenge the premise of the question because I don't know if the answer is the same. Right. I do think that we can help people maybe ask a little bit of a different question. So when Um, you, when you go out to communities, is it that it's helpful to bring in somebody from the outside who is saying these things as opposed to somebody from the inside saying them that maybe it's a little, you're a little more validated as coming in as an expert who is bringing ideas and then they can take that back with them. Like what's your objective when you go in and bring some of these ideas to the communities that you engage? I think the knowledge is very appreciated and very necessary. I think that in many ways, the most valuable knowledge is helping organize the questions that people are asking, helping stimulate their thinking in in important ways. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So for the last year and a half, my colleagues and I have worked on this really interesting self-assessment for synagogues that's called our Thriving Congregations Assessment. And The idea of the Thriving Congregations Assessment is basically that my colleagues interviewed a number of rabbis and lay leaders around the country about what are kind of the key stone practices and the key attributes that are a part of synagogues. And we we kind of collated them together into this one assessment. And we go around to communities and our staff will do it with a synagogue board or, or with a conference with a bunch of different congregations And teams of lay leaders will fill out this assessment as a team. Now, our value in that moment is twofold. One is we're able to give them examples from around the country of interesting stories and case studies of how congregations are responsive to those attributes. Mm -hmm. 
it's one thing for me to say, you should do this on your synagogue website. But a couple of weeks before I did one of these assessments, a colleague of mine in Philadelphia was so excited to show me their new synagogue website. So you go to most synagogue websites and it's like, you know, a lot of them are, are quite similar to one another. But you go to this congregation's website and you scroll down off the kind of initial part of the homepage and they have this thing where you basically can customize your experience. Hmm. Search everything that's going on in the synagogue, either around your affinity group, like if you're a, a family with young children or a empty nester or a um, Hebrew school parent or by interest. Uh, like if you're into uh, uh, social justice or you want to know about yoga and meditation or whatever it is, that was this congregation's responsiveness to one of the core principles of our assessment, which has to do with synagogues being good at creating lots of different entry points for different people and interests. Now, it's one thing for, for United Synagogue staff to go to a group and say, hey, this is a principle that you should follow. Right it's much more powerful to kind of lead by showing them the example. Mm-hmm. Because when, when I showed the example most recently, when I did this assessment, you know, you could see people's eyes kind of rock back in their heads because they were like, wow, that is an amazing way to approach that problem. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is an impact that a central organization can be like a keeper of in terms of right. disseminating and sharing knowledge but I think it's different than sort of saying this is the way to do it. So that's, you know, that's the kind of balance I, at least I try to strike. That's great. Knowing your role, right, is part of the importance of, of the work that you're doing, talking about it as a grassroots organization, but this national body, your role is to be those eyes, to be those connectors, to really see what's happening on a, a larger scale, and then be able to funnel that into the constituencies you serve. So I have a quick question about foundations, and I know this might be a little bit veering, but I found that foundations are very interested in the new and exciting ways for people to engage with Judaism, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that, obviously. Do you find that the institution is competing, and maybe this is only in the larger community settings, but you know, they're funding projects where it's, you know, focused on doing dinners in the homes or doing tech study at the park or all these wonderful programs, ways that people can connect to Judaism that are outside of the traditional synagogue world. And it feels a little bit like that's what they're looking for, right? They're not funding synagogue programs. They're not funding these initiatives within the synagogue walls. They're funding these outside of the synagogue walls instead of strengthening the communities and the institutions we currently have. And I just want to see sort of your thoughts if if you felt like there was a dichotomy, if there was a struggle between our institutional synagogues and what is being funded in the larger Jewish community. Well, it's a great question. I certainly think that there is the divide you're discussing, you're referring to. I don't have a strong feeling as to why that is. You know, I think that it would be very interesting to have that conversation with someone, say, in an an organization like mine, with someone who works in an organization that funds the kind of thing that you're talking about and sort of understand like the vantage point where each kind of constituencies coming from. I do think that there are examples where the world of Jewish philanthropy has slowly transformed elements of synagogue life in ways that I think maybe even people in synagogues don't even realize happened. So for example, there was a time in a typical North American synagogue when there was no such a seedling of an idea that you would have a position in a congregation called the director of lifelong learning. Right. (laughs) That language did not exist when my grandfather was a Hebrew school principal in the 1950s and 60s. That language came, I believe that the people who kind of introduced that term, what was a part of something that was called the Reimagine Project that, that had to do with really taking a reflective look at congregational education. And, you know, the congregations that were in those projects were in very intensively doing this heavily subsidized program. But now eventually you have lots of congregations that create this position of director of lifelong learning, not in any way going through maybe the process that those first synagogues went through. And so on the one hand, it's not as intentional. And on the other hand, I think that it's very valuable that in synagogues that title exists because I think that it, the, the title itself says something about 
how the synagogue looks at what it does. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not just running a Hebrew school for kids. We are about learning from when you're born to through your entire Jewish life. And it's a different kind of statement. So there is elements of that. I think that on the one hand, I do think there are some examples of it, but I don't, I think that they're the exception, not the rule. Yeah. You get the sense that all the people that synagogues are seeking outside funding for these maybe more innovative programs that they like to put on, or is the funding that they seek to do innovative things coming from within? I think that it depends on the synagogue. I also think that you know, although my title at United Synagogue is Director of Innovation, one of the things that I try to remind myself in my head quite a bit is this idea that innovation is a process and not an outcome. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm totally that. blanking. That is not. That is definitely not my quote, and I'm totally blanking on. Oh, that's okay. Lest anyone, I'm taking it anyway. <laughs> so less that anyone think that I'm plagiarizing. It is definitely not my quote. But what I would say is that certain Jewish institutions have you know very different processes for how they try to solve problems. So if a, a synagogue or a, a day school or a Jewish organization responds to the problem of the moment, for example, by saying, well, let's plan a program to address Mm -hmm. that problem. You know, that to me is a flaw in the process. Like, I don't know if that's good. That's not going to lead to innovative thinking because there's something wrong with your process. Mm -hmm. And so there are synagogues that treat the challenges differently than that. And, you know, I, I, I certainly think there are plenty of funders and organizations that partner with interesting synagogues that do interesting work. And I think it's partially because they have a different idea of what a, a really good process looks like to try and address whatever it is that they're trying to work their way through. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, so I'm going to refocus the conversation for a quick moment. You mentioned in your article that you go to a gym, you have small children. I'm a six-month-old. Wonderful. I, obviously, you're a full-time job. I can only assume there are probably other things that you do or enjoy in your life. How do you stay grounded? How do you get it all done? How do you deal with your kids inside for a snow day? <laughs> what are some things that you employ in your life to, to keep that balance? Wow. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that question before. It's a great, it's a great question. Let me, so let me think for a minute here. Yeah, go for it. You know, I came of age in high school during the boom age of the internet and the World Wide Web. This is like before, you know, Facebook and Twitter. But I was a fairly typical teenager who thought that he could multitask his way through everything. You know, so a typical school night for me was sitting in front of my computer while talking to someone on the telephone, while chatting someone on AOL Instant Messenger when AOL Instant Messenger was a thing, you know, while trying to do my homework, (laughs) all that other stuff. One of the things that I learned is that there is no such thing as multitasking. There is doing one task and then there is doing more than one task with each task not being done quite as well as if you were doing one task at a time. As I get older, I try more and more to do one thing at a time. Now that that might mean that there's a lot of different things to be doing, but I think that it helps me manage my attention well and also makes certain... things not feel quite as overwhelming. And I, I, you know, I, I definitely fall short on it, but it's something that I try to get better at a little bit every day. That's really great advice. I'm sure a lot of people like myself find themselves closing out some windows and be like, oh yeah, that email that I never pressed sent on, like, oh, it was like one last word I needed to finish because it wasn't paying attention to, you know, that one task at one time. I will make a confession on, on your podcast that I don't think that I would describe myself is particularly good at what some people would charitably call like work-life balance on a number of metrics. I last year I had my colleagues filled out a 360 evaluation of me. You know, okay. Yeah. Yourself and others rate you now. There was a question on that evaluation about how do you manage work with not working and I gave myself like a three out of 10. Like I gave myself a, a very, very low grade. And my colleagues gave me a grade of somewhere in between like a six or a seven, which is like above average. Put on a good show. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say there are a number of pieces of feedback in there that they helped me see things about myself that I had never noticed. But in that particular area, I must have put on a really good show because I am definitely the one who knows that more accurately than they do. Right. Um, for a question like, how well does Josh deal with conflict or, <laughs> or, you know, um, or give feedback? Like, 
I trust their evaluation and areas of improvement more than my own judgment. So I, I'm also going to cop to in the interview saying I don't, I don't consider myself particularly good at that, but I, I try my best. I think that's the same for everyone. And it's it, the concept of work-life balance is changing too, right? We have our phones on us all the time and it's not that the expectation necessarily changes, but you see an email and you're just going to look at it, right? Or you've got a few minutes and you really want to get something done. And we live in a very dynamic world. So I'm hoping at least you take time for yourself when you know that you need to or are forced to by the weather. Either way, any other advice that you can think of for an audience of Jewish professionals or as we've sort of been talking, things that you think we've left out in this conversation? If I'm going to make a final remark, I would say that the Jewish professional world always needs people who want to be deeply committed to synagogues. Every Jewish organization is important in its own way. So if the person listening to this works in the federation system or Israel activism or social justice or millennial engagement or or whatever it is, it's all important. But I will say that the synagogue remains by a large margin, even with declining affiliation, the most affiliated Jewish institution. Mm -hmm. There's an access to that system that I think is very valuable and always needs talented people. I think that sometimes there can be maybe almost a branding perception of the work, that it's not the most cutting edge, but I think that it's always a very exciting place to be. And I think that it's it's also a very necessary place to be. So if anyone's out there listening or making career choices, then, you know, that's just like my last plug. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it circles myself back to the foundation question, right? You say that this isn't the most exciting cutting edge, but why not, right? Why isn't this, if this is the place where, where Jews are, where Jews come, when you think of Jewish synagogue is the first thing you think of, why isn't this the place that money is going to create these innovative, exciting programs that draw people in that say, oh yeah, synagogues are dynamic and they're interesting and they're they're doing some really creative things. Whereas you might say that about a particular synagogue, but you know, you don't necessarily say that about all synagogues or synagogue life, which I think there's a vast need for improvement in the way that we invest our money in the Jewish community to just say, ah, synagogues are old hat when they're they're not, and they have a building. <laughs> Buildings have value as well, or don't have a building. I mean, I'm just, it's, um, it just brings that back up to me as you're talking. I'm sure the people that you meet are excited to be together, are looking for ways to bring innovation and those elements into their community. One of my um, big, hairy, audacious dreams that if there's a billionaire funder out there listening to the podcast that wants to give me a call, that I think the Jewish community could really use essentially a Teach for America equivalent for synagogues. Teach for America has been studied in all kinds of ways. And so whether it's good for schools or good for teaching or or whatever, I, I think it would be hard to, to argue, though, that it wasn't an enormous success in convincing a decent number of young people who might have otherwise never thought of being a teacher in a public school to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And some of those people made it a career and some of them are at the cutting edge of public education. You know, one of the ideas I think when Wendy Kopp founded that organization was that in addition to just benefiting schools, she also felt that there was a benefit to the field by having people who were coming in with excitement and possibility at an early stage Mm -hmm. and bringing their energy to it. You know, the next generation of congregational educators and executive directors and clergy and lay leaders, I think is going to come in part from people who are able to infuse it with interesting things. So I think that we could desperately use something like that. I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) That's very well. Uh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate you coming on the program. This was a fantastic conversation. And we'll have your contact information up on our website for anyone who'd like to follow up or read more about your writings or the article from Jewish Philanthropy and how they can bring these things uh, to their community, either professionally or as a volunteer. Uh, so thank you so much, Josh. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Josh talks about why he enjoys working with synagogues and talks about his upbringing and experience with his parents. And what that brings up for me is the notion that the work that we do 
is seen by others and seen by our children and seen by those who we work with. And we're sending a message and that message is what are the important things in life and that those things are community and dependability, giving your time for something bigger than yourself. And that permeates through the rest of our lives. Our children see it. The people we work with see it. The next generation is really influenced by how we are choosing to live our lives. And that really resonated with me when Josh talked about his parents and how that influenced him growing up. What Josh really does is challenge us to rethink how we talk about membership in our organizations and in synagogues. And not the question of why aren't we growing, a question that anyone can ask, why aren't people coming to our institution? But the question really should be, what can we be doing differently? How can we truly be living the values of our organization that our organization claims to promote? And when you evaluate that, when you look at that, you're really able to say, what does it mean to say to a person who is not affiliated with your organization or synagogue to come to you and say, yes? right? To say my identity matches the identity that you are portraying. And I want to say that I'm a member of your organization and feel proud about what that means. And really thinking about that underlining branding of what does it mean to be a member of your organization? What does it mean to be a member of your synagogue? Does it mean something? And we begin to define ourselves and figure out what makes you stand out. And not just against the competitors, right? Not just against the synagogue down the street or the organization that also does similar work, but against those who are unaffiliated, against those who might be seeking you and you don't even know it. But once they can identify themselves and see themselves in the values that you promote, not saying you're going to magically find growth, but it's a good place to start in really identifying who you are why you exist, what is the value that you bring, and why would somebody identify themselves, put their money, their time, their family, their resources into making your community strong. And although not his unique words, (laughs) I think it is important to repeat his sentence that innovation is a process, not an outcome. So if you are focused on those numbers and you say, we're going to be, you know, 300 members by the end of 2017, Maybe that's not the goal, right? Maybe the goal is the process of innovation and it's not we're going to grow or we're going to attract more people. Maybe it's the process of we're going to re-identify who we are. We're going to think more deeply about why we do what we do and what that means for ourselves, for our members, for the larger community around us. And how can we be our best selves? the best organization we can be doing our best work that is unique to what we are able to offer. And lastly, if anyone is interested in starting a Teach for America style program for synagogue, maybe a work for Judaism or something like that, uh, Josh's contact information is on our website, along with his blog and how to get in touch with him to read more of his writings. And some exciting news about the podcast I wanted to share with everyone. Uh, We are now up to 100 downloads for any one of our given podcasts. And for me, that is really exciting. This is only the fourth podcast that I'm publishing. And already, I feel like we're reaching people who want to hear from these professionals. We are in the process of finding a fiscal sponsor so that our podcast can stay on for longer and we can continue to do this. I'd love to be able to bring you a new guest every week, and we're looking to do just that. So thank you for listening. If this is the your first podcast that you've heard from us or the third or fourth podcast that you've listened to, I really appreciate your time and look forward to many more conversations that I have with wonderful Jewish professionals coming up. And again, if you have any questions or suggestions for guests, you can find me at itswhoyouknowpodcast.wordpress.com. Until next time, this is Michelle W. Malkin. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowpodcast.wordpress.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.